Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 26 this morning. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and so for us here at Calvary Okinawa, we will also have a time of communion at the close of our service. So thank you, Matt. If anybody needs to borrow a Bible, just going to raise your hand real high and wave at Matt, and he'll be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 12. We're picking up where we left, left off from last Sunday. We're at verse 18, and you'll notice we, uh, we don't quite get to the end. I'm going to stop a little bit short at verse 26 in our uh, message or our portion of Scripture this morning, and I entitled our time, Our Spiritual Start and Finish. Our Spiritual Start and Finish. All right, if you are there with me, I'm going to invite you to stand as read the Scripture. The writer of Hebrews records for us, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, to the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Parenthetically, the writer tells us, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned and shot with an arrow. Quotes from Exodus. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Here's a contrast, the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. We have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and of course to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And then we're encouraged, or perhaps even warned, verse 25, and see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven. All right, we're going to pause there. Uh, it's a very uh, meaty portion this morning. So we're going to pray and ask God to help us to unpack it and to understand and to apply. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your spirit. Jesus, of whom you said that you would send to be our guide, our teacher, our comforter, our encourager, the one who inspired men to pen these words and the same one who then illuminates our minds and hearts to understand these words. And, and Lord, then beyond that, to then apply them that we would hear and we would obey. And so, Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would come and lead us and guide us through these verses, Lord, help me and Yumi as she translates into Japanese, Lord, that all of us together would be able to hear your heart of who we are, of what you've provided, and Lord, and where we're going, to open our spiritual eyes to where we get to start and our spiritual eyes of, Lord, where you're bringing us. And so we commit our time of study to you now. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment. You can say hello to someone. We have a couple of new families that are visiting, and then you may have a seat. So the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar, and even as we read, is probably the most Old Testament-y. Is that, can, I make, can I turn that into a... <laughs> Uh, a word. Uh, of, it's the most Old Testament-like of the New Testament. The writer, if you've been journeying with us or you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know references the Old Testament a lot. 
And the original audience, as they would read these things, would be able to follow along well. They would just track right along because, well, the majority of them have a Jewish background. They, they grew up with this. They know it like the back of their hand. Hence, even the name of the book, uh, Hebrews. These were Jewish Christians. These were Hebrew Christians. And so these references to the Old Testament people and places and things and systems, the priests, uh, all of the sacrificial system, the events, all of it, they are very, very familiar with. But for us, as we read these things and can read these things, generally, we're not very familiar with them. We, if you're like me, I don't know them well. I certainly didn't grow up with these things. Uh, you know, so I have to study them. I have to read other references. I have to read the Old Testament to have a, a solid grasp on what's happening and who are they talking about. I mean, unless you've studied uh, the Old Testament well and or unless you've had, you know, a, a Jewish background or upbringing or friends or family, and maybe this is something that you are already familiar with. And so sometimes when we read these Old Testament references and and accounts, they can get a little bit confusing. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, that is uh, yet another reason for us to be reading and studying the entire Bible. Uh, the Bible tells of itself, it testifies of itself, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, right? All of Scripture is inspired of the Lord, and all of Scripture is profitable for us. It's good for us uh, to instruct us, to teach us, to even correct us and rebuke us as we need uh, all of the Bible. And so I think it was Tozer who said it takes all of the Bible to make all a Christian, right? To be a whole Christian, we want to have the whole Bible. And so uh, anyways, just a, a, an encouragement for us to be readers and studiers of the Old Testament, because so much of what the Old Testament presents to us and, and, and tells us, uh, the New Testament makes a commentary, right? We, we get the, the fuller revelation, uh, the fuller unpacking of what, were, what, is, what was God intending and meaning by some of these things that he wrote about in the Old Testament. If you were with us when we started some, some time ago, uh, the book of Hebrews, I think I, I likened it to watching Star Wars movies. And, uh, you know, if you watch the newer releases like The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker, and, but you haven't watched the earlier movies, uh, you, you could still enjoy the newer movies. There's, there's still an element of, you know, tracking and you can get some of it. But if you haven't watched the older ones, you will miss so much of the backstory, or you'll miss some of the plots and the subplots and the people and the history of some of their uh, relationships that you know are presented. And, or maybe you're not a Star. If you're a Trekkie fan, you can do the same thing with the new Star Trek, right? In the old ones, but and the same thing is true for the Book of Hebrews, and, and actually all of the New Testament. It's when we read and we study and we know the Old Testament, when you have a background of that, it enhances and it amplifies your understanding and appreciation. And I would even add the enjoyment of the New Testament and what is you know, spoken in the New Testament. And so these verses that we read and we will reread and unpack this morning, it's, it's very Old testimony. And for our time of study, I divided it into three separate pictures. The, the first is this contrast of mountains, where the writer says, you, you haven't come to this mountain, but you've come to the mountain of God. The second is a contrast of responses to God speaking, uh, of one group that listened and didn't obey, and then what we should do. And the third contrast, which we're actually not going to unpack so much this morning, but it's of things that are shaken and the stability of and what remains intact after God says he's going to shake these things. And so for our time this morning, we're going to consider just the first two, the contrast of mountains and a response to God's word. 
And of course, along the way, we want to understand what the author is talking about. Why is he talking about these things? How did it apply to the original audience? And then for us today, as we're sitting here on a beautiful day in Okinawa, how does this apply to us? What, what, what do we do with these things that God is, is um, you know, unpacking or explaining through the writer of Hebrews? So before we jump in, I, I have kind of a, an additional thought for introduction. In my first reading of this section as I was studying, it, it confused me as to uh, why the author suddenly seems to switch topics in his illustration. Now, I can understand what he's saying, but why? why like, why all of a sudden is he, does he pivot to these examples? You might remember that he opened at chapter 12 with comparing the Christian life to running a race. And last week we noted that he seemed to keep the same metaphor as he talked about the need to strengthen uh, our weakened hands and feeble knees and the imagery of a runner who's just tired, you know, almost has no more gas in their tank and, and is just kind of coming to the end and is just so weary and tired. And, and so he seemed as though he kept on that same imagery of running a race. He, the author used an Old Testament figure as he talked about Esau, this example really of who not to be and what not to do, and he talked about how Esau really was a symbol of a person who just lived for themselves. They were more concerned about feeding their flesh. You remember he sold his birthright for a bowl of frijoles and, and, and just valued worldly things more than spiritual things. And so there's Maybe there's a segue there to the Old Testament as he's talking about Esau, but, but it does seem like the writer completely abandons the, the theme of running, that whole metaphor, and now he's talking about mountains and this Old Testament scene of Moses going to Mount Sinai, uh, God speaking from the mountain, and this declaration of how God's going to shake things up. And so I was trying to figure out, Lord, how do, how do those go together? I want to suggest to you that while the pictures and metaphor have changed, the point that the writer is making, his overall message, hasn't changed. And I'll just lay it out as I see it. I, overall, his point is this, that when they have, and when you and I have today, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, everything changes. And everything changes from the beginning. God changes our identity. We were once blind, but now we see. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in him. Our identity changes. We were once children of wrath, just as the rest, but now, behold, the manner of the love of God, we're, we're called the children of God. And so our identity changes. And that in turn, or I guess along with that, I should say, it changes the direction of our life. We were once on this course straight to hell, and God saved us, and he put us on this new path, and that's what the writer's been talking about, this course, this race, this upward call that all of us are on to, you know, eventually we're going to be with the Lord. And so our identity has changed, our the trajectory of our life, the direction of our life has changed, and then, and then also the destination, like where we end up, what's the end goal, where, what are we running for and what are we running to, all of that has changed. And so the, the theme is the same, it's our journey with Jesus and how he has gone ahead of us. He is our captain of our faith, the author of our faith, the, and the finisher. So he goes ahead of us, he goes with us, and, he, and, he, and, he, and we get to follow him by faith. And we've talked already, right, how this pathway, this race of life, it's not easy. 
We don't want to make the mistake to think that just because we're Christians that all of a sudden life is going to be easy. It's not. We shouldn't expect it to be. The writer says we, we're in need of endurance. We're, we're in need of perseverance. And I think, amen, Lord, I am every day. Because, yeah, the road can be rough. And, it, you know, we can get, uh, you know, knocked down along the way. And yet God's given us his spirit to, to empower us and to exhort us, to encourage us. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to pray, and he's going to send you another helper, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. And then grace upon grace, we talked about how God places us then in this uh, thing called the church. We're in community together so that we can uh, spur one another on to love and good deeds, to help encourage and to uplift and come alongside and to support and how we need each other. And, and so that has been the theme. And so I just wanted to review that and then, you know, talking about where does he go from here then? If, if you know, it's true that we're reminded that our new identity brings us into a new direction, that brings us into a new destination, these verses speak to that. It's the same theme, it's just a different metaphor. That God is preparing us for eternity. And it's this next section that speaks of where God has, what God has brought us into, where God is bringing us, and what God has provided for us, you know, to get there, and what our destination looks like. And so it's almost like the author is saying, okay, on this race of faith, where's our starting line? Let's remember that. Like where, where you come into when you come into faith with Jesus Christ. And he uses then the Old Testament, and specifically he uses two mountains, and he contrasts those two mountains to make his point. So verse 18, I draw your attention back to that verse. Actually, we'll take kind of a section for our time this morning. For you haven't come to a mountain, you haven't come to a mountain, that may be touched. He talks about it's burned with fire and blackness and darkness, this storm, this tempest. Think typhoon. The sound of a trumpet, these voice of words. We haven't come to that mountain. And, and again, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're like, what are you talking about? But he's reminding them, the reader, us of this scene that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus, also in Deuteronomy, where God would meet Moses on Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel would gather around, and he goes on and he talks about how that those who heard it, that's the nation of Israel, when they heard the, the trumpet, they heard the storm, they heard the words God was speaking, that they begged. We read here that, they don't want to listen to it anymore. And the writer recounts, kind of gives us this commentary of how God had said, you can come to the mountain, but do not touch it. And how terrifying it was that even Moses, who had an exclusive pass to go into and up to the mountain and talk with God, that even he was afraid. And so in verses 18 through 21, it's this scene from the Old Testament. If you like, later on you can read Exodus 19, 20, Deuteronomy 4. It's a scene of Mount Sinai. It's where God would speak to Moses and meet with Moses in a series of meetings. And God would give Moses the Ten Commandments. And God would give Moses what would become the Mosaic Law. This, this guidance for God's people, both uh, how they were to... Uh, worship and how they were to live, and it was civic laws, and and you know governed their every aspect of their life. And so the author summarizes really this remarkable scene that's a blend of of awesome, of of wonder, but then also terror. We, we don't get too many. Uh, electrical storms here. From time to time we do. 
maybe you've lived in a place, I think they're mostly the southwest, right? Like maybe even the southeast. I remember when I lived in Southern California, there were a few that come through and, and, and you could see them on a distance. And so it was, uh, you know, awesome to watch from a distance. I don't think I've ever been really in the middle of one or the midst of one. Maybe, has anybody here been like in the middle of the, I, I can imagine like it's exciting, but maybe partly terrifying. Right? The thunderclaps and the booms and the lightning strikes and how the sky would light up. It's this mix of, of right wonder and, and, and terror. And, and that's, that's the scene there at Mount Sinai. And as the writer recaps, it was dark, it was stormy, it's this tempest. And, and, and in the middle of that, or added to that maybe I should say, was the sound of this trumpet. Now, Exodus doesn't tell us what's the source of that trumpet. Neither does the writer of Hebrews. It seems as though it's supernatural. In the middle of this storm, and all of a sudden, added to those sensations, right? Added to, it's almost like sensory overload. What you're seeing, what you're experiencing, the emotion of it, and then all of a sudden, there's just this, this trumpet like a, like a warning siren. You know, over the last couple of months, maybe like sometimes our phones will go off, right? With just that eerie sound, or maybe you live out in town and you have the loudspeakers near, like that's like the loudspeakers are like right outside my window <laughs> where, I, where I live. And so when there was that earthquake not too long ago, and there was that tsunami warning, and right, and oh look, there's one right now. It's a little bit eerie, right? That, it's like, oh, it's like an air raid siren. It's, it's that type of sensation. Here's these trumpets that are blowing. In fact, Exodus says they got louder and they got louder. And God would tell Moses, I want you to mark out this boundary line. Put up these cones, if you will, and and people can come close, but they cannot cross this line. And while it was a physical place, it was in a sense where he says, you know, you, you've, you haven't come to a mountain that may be touched. It was tangible. But at the same time, God said, don't touch. In fact, any living thing, if it crossed this line, it meant certain death. God said it is to be put to death. It was capital punishment for crossing this line. And people were invited to come as close as they could, but don't cross over. I mean, all of it was this, uh, like a living parable of the holiness of God. That you could come close, but you can't come so close. God is holy and, and we are not. Really unlike the the major theme, even if we entitled our whole series where the writer of Hebrews says, we, we get to draw near to God. But the people are afraid. That's what marked their, their response, fear. And as God spoke, they were afraid. In fact, they even tell Moses, ah, why don't you go and talk with God? Then you can come back and then just tell us what he said. Reminds me of my kids sometimes. They'll send in one of their siblings to be the representative, you know. Oh, can we do, do this, you know? But what's amazing is to think that even Moses had already talked with God previously. He already had this private conference with the Lord, and God had already spoken to him. And there's a part where he got to see, you know, part of the glory of God, not all of it. And yet even this particular scene, we read here, it was too intense for even Moses, that Moses was terrified by it all. And yet what we understand, again, the writer doesn't tell us here, but we can read in Exodus, we understand that, that Moses was afraid, he's terrified, and yet he didn't allow his fear to keep him back from obeying what God had told him to do. Maybe it's just kind of a side bonus point, a reminder for us how Sometimes we can allow fear to keep us from doing what God has called us to do, and sometimes we can 
uh, you know, allow fear to keep us from being obedient to what God has called us to do. Moses realized it was God's way of warning the people in the way that I'll summarize is that, that God doesn't play games. Why was it intense? Why was it, in a sense, terrifying and scary for them? I suggest to you, as Moses would relay, that he, God wanted to give a glimpse of his power so that the people would have a, a, a reverent and holy fear to keep them in check. And nowadays, uh, we might say, oh, God was flexing a little. Just a little, little something, something to show who God is and you know, how fearful the Lord can be. And that he needed to impress upon the people the seriousness of his law. And why, why? why? Because we already know, right? Because God is serious about sin. The whole reason he's serious about his law is because he's really serious about sin and the consequences of sin. So God gathers them to become this nation and wants them to be a holy people and he wants them and needed them to understand what what the expectations were under the law and that God was serious about this. And yes, while it was scary, it was designed that way to um, to leave an impression. Because God knows the nature of our heart. In fact, we even say that we might say that God was justified in that because if you know the rest of the account, even though it was very impressionable, even though it was quite the scene, it was perhaps uh, moving in that moment, it didn't last because it only takes 40 days from that scene to where the people are gathered together and Aaron comes and says, hey, why don't you give me all your gold and, uh, and throws it in the fire and he fashions this golden calf that they begin to worship and dance around like, this is our God that delivered us. It only took 40 days. It's the opposite of Lent. Right? <laughs> and so here's the scene that the author is recounting for the Hebrews as we read it. He says, listen, we, we haven't come to that mountain. When we come to faith, we don't enter into that scene. That's not our starting point. That, that's the starting point of, again, for context, of where our ancestors began. Of those who lived by the law. The old life. One of the things he's been trying to encourage them is, we don't have to live by the old life anymore. God has set us free from that. And for us, the old life may not represent living by uh, Jewish faith traditions. For us, the old life might be, uh, it may not be marked by priesthood. Maybe in your life, it's marked by partying. It's marked by living for self. Or maybe it is a religious system that you're part of, a certain faith tradition that, that was legalistic and you know, more about the rituals than it really was about relationship, and God's brought you out of that. So here's the contrast. He says, we haven't come to that mountain, but we have, verse 22, we have come to Mount Zion. We haven't come to Mount Sinai, but we've come to Mount Zion. And then he adds that. He says, you've come to the city of the living God. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. Notice, it's not a tangible. He's, he's not talking about something that's tangible. He's talking about something that's spiritual. To a numeral company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. We, we, we come to the very presence of God, the judge of all. We've come into the, the same fellowship of the spirits of just men made perfect. The idea of people who have died and, and gone uh, to heaven ahead of us. And then, of course, verse 24, we've come, well, we've come to Jesus. The very mediator and intercessor of the new covenant. And he talks about how then it's his blood that was spilt. 
that was shed. And, and, and this interesting phrase that it speaks better things than that of Abel. And so when we come to faith, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a different starting place. We don't come into a legalistic relationship. We don't come into a place of, of rules and regulations. We, we enter into a loving relationship with God, and it's not modeled after Israel's experience in Mount Sinai. You know, there is a group of people, the writer doesn't address them here in Hebrews, but you go through Romans and you go through Galatians and, and uh, we read of those particular community groups where there was another group that came in and said, oh, it's great that you love Jesus, it's great that you're following the Messiah, but it's not enough. If you really want to be spiritual, then you need to follow the Old Testament rule. You need to be circumcised and obey the Sabbath laws. And, and there's, you can't be eating that bacon cheeseburger. And spam musubi, forget it. And so they're trying to add in, if you will, add to the gospel. And so the writer here is reminding us, no, we, our starting point is completely different. We have a new covenant a, a new contract. We get to live by faith. Mount Zion represents that. Receiving grace. Now, Mount Zion is a literal place in Israel. It's another name for Mount Moriah. Man, the Lord tarries and we get to go back. I pray that we can. You know, We usually have done a, a a tour of Israel about every three years as a church. And I'd love to be able to take you with us and you know, go and be able just to walk the sites and see. And It's like the Bible in 4D. It's amazing. And the food is incredible. <laughs> but when you go, you realize, even though they call it, it's kind of like the mountains here in Okinawa, right? They're not really mountains. Kind of, right? Relative to Okinawa, they're mountains. <clears throat> and some of you have hiked them and take pictures. Uh, but they're in, at least in Jerusalem, in the Mount of Olives. Then there's Mount Moriah, and then there's Zion. And they're all almost like just kind of hills of this range. And so Mount Zion... It's really kind of another name for the area where Mount Moriah was. And of course, if you're familiar again with the Old Testament, you know that Mount Moriah is very significant. That is the place where Abraham would offer Isaac as an offering. There, very prophetically, where he didn't kill Isaac, but he said, son, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And indeed, in that very place is where God provided himself a sacrifice, where Jesus you know, would die. Today, the name Zion represents or encompasses not just the geographic location, God bless you, but, but really symbolizes the whole region or even just a, a nationalism of Israel. Sometimes they're called Zionists. You might heard that, you know, the Zionist movement. That's the idea of, of those who want to come into the fulfillment and see the fullness of God's promise to the Jewish people of having their own place that's not divided, that's not shared, that they can live in peace. And we know as we read the scriptures that there is a prophecy, many prophecies that promise that there's going to be one day where that will be fulfilled. That both the... Uh, the physical geographic location in Jerusalem, in Israel, and the spiritual reality of promise will, you know, will be together. But right now, for us, it's just the spiritual reality. And that's what the author is talking about. And that what God gave at Mount Sinai, if you will, was uh, mainly for the children of Israel and what God gave at Mount Zion, spiritual, and it's for all people when we come to faith in Christ. 
And so what is the writer trying to convey for us? Well, at the start of our journey in the Lord, when we come to faith, listen, gang, we, we come into a spiritual reality that's not defined by tangible things, material things. It's not marked by that. It's not governed by that. But we have a spiritual inheritance. And it's good to be reminded because I think we could forget this and we allow ourselves to, to become attached to things. And we find security in material things or we find identity in earthly things, labels and our job titles, our ethnicity, or any other label that we, you know, our political affiliation or our doctrinal position. We have all of these different labels that we, uh, you know, identify by. Again, remember that the Jewish people in one sense um, you know, had this heritage, and they were very proud of that heritage. I think nothing wrong. I think just uh, a sanctified version of that, to be embarrassed of who we are and how God's made us. This beautiful kaleidoscope, tapestry of the creation of God. We're all different shapes and shades, and it's beautiful. But for the Jews, they had taken great pride and confidence in the temple. This icon, this building that would define who they are, their symbol of worship. And they took great pride and confidence in the priesthood and, and how, what God had given them. And even in the city of Jerusalem. And what's interesting to me, again, it's not within the context of what we're reading here, but it would be in history just a matter of time that the same audience that's reading these things would experience the destruction of the temple, would experience the destruction of their beloved city, where the priesthood would all of a sudden go away and the temple sacrifices would stop and all of it would come to a screaming halt. And many of them would be persecuted, killed, and scattered throughout the whole region. The tangible Jerusalem, the earthly temple in Israel would be destroyed. And the writer says, but we have a heavenly Jerusalem. We come into this spiritual inheritance where we aren't scattered or alone. We have this innumerable company of angels that are around us. We, we've come into this thing called the church, the body of Christ. I imagine for them that some years that would follow, they would go back and reread this. It's a source of comfort for them, of a spiritual reality, of where they were finding their security and their identity and, and you know, all that they knew that was tangible again, would be removed. And the writer talks about that. God was doing that on purpose, shaking things up, which we'll talk more in depth about next Sunday, and we'll talk about current events and some things. And, and just, I think the last two years, God has been shaking us up. But what remains? What spiritual truth that remains? And this list that he gives us of, of this angelic reality, this other spiritual realm that's true, that remains. The, the church remains. They're not defined by a building. They're defined by a relationship with the Lord. He reminds us of our heavenly citizenship. We're registered in heaven. We come to faith, right? We all get, if you will, a passport, a spiritual passport that says we are citizens of heaven. We watch the news today. Gang, we need to be praying for Ukraine and Russia and UN and all these things that are happening. And I think just yesterday, right, North Korea fired another rocket and things are beginning to heat up more so. Wednesday, we prayed for Israel and Burma and all these other places too. And, and so we're watching, right, wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 pestilence and 
you know, all of these things, and yet the Lord himself says, hey, we don't have to allow our heart to grow faint or become afraid. These are signs. These are birth pangs. The end is coming. And we can look up and be excited that our redemption draws nigh. And yet we look around and, and, and you know, the things of earth are deteriorating. And so the writer reminds us, hey, here's your spiritual reality. Don't invest so much in the things around you. Don't drop anchor in this side of heaven. And for us, we want to be informed about what's happening. We want to be aware of what's going on, but we don't have to be intimidated. Again, we don't have to be afraid of those things. And a reminder that you belong to God. And God has a plan and a purpose for your life that extends beyond this temporal world. Some years ago when North Korea was kind of on this kick and they were firing, you know, kind of regular rockets. And one even, if you were here, you remember, it went over the island of Okinawa. And it kind of freaked out Christy a bit. And she's like, honey, what, what are we going to do if they fire a missile at us? I'm like, what do you mean, what are we going to do? Like, what if North Korea fires a nuclear bomb at us? Where should we go? I'm like, we're going to go outside, and we're going to go meet Jesus. What do you mean where we're going to go? Like, how big do you think Okinawa is? Like, <laughs> uh, our concrete houses are great for typhoons, but uh, not for an ICBM missile, right? Like, you just raise your hands, honey. We're going to glory. Like, <laughs> So wars and rumors of wars remind us that Christ is coming back soon. And so here the writer is reminding us when, when life and the world around us seems to be unstable and God's allowing this shaking, this, guess what? We can remain secure. And we can stay confident and locked into the Lord and knowing that this life is temporary. We, we come into something that's eternal and it's spiritual. And it's not defined by the tangible. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, we read about how Moses himself forsook Egypt. And it said, the writer told us he endured all these difficulties of life, all of the complaining, all of the wandering, all of the horrible meals. Why or how? It says he saw him who was invisible. The writer talked already about how the saints of old pressed through the rough days because they looked forward to a city that was coming that wasn't built with hands. A spiritual inheritance being prepared for them. And so gang, in the same way, man, one great way for us to lay hold of God's grace in our life is to look up and ahead to the wonderful things that God has given us and where God is bringing us. The writer reminds us that we haven't come into the same way. We've come to Mount Zion. And we come to God, of course, who remains this righteous judge of heaven and earth. We get to enter into the inheritance of those who've died before us, who are made perfect because of Christ, and they graduated into heaven before us. What a great comfort that is. This past week, I got news that Pastor James, or Bishop James Whitaker from Zion Church here in Okinawa, passed away. He graduated, entered into heaven. He pastored a church called Zion, and now he gets to be in heavenly Zion. Oh, my heart broke. He's such a nice man. And he was ministering here long before even we came. So more than, we've been here 20-something years. He's been here, I think, 40 And so my heart broke for him and his wife and his son, Joshua. You need to pray for his son. He took over the church. He's the pastor there now. But also at the same time, the Bible talks about how we don't sorrow like the world sorrows, right? We, we can be sad, but we also rejoice. Because we have the blessed assurance. We know, I, like we know exactly where Pastor James is. He's with Jesus. And so here the writer again reminds us of these things. Then tells us, verse 24, that Jesus is here. He is the one who gave his life for you and for me so we can have all of these things. 
And then he uses a very interesting phrase. He says, as a better offering, that the blood of Christ speaks better things than the earthly sacrifices that Abel made. Blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Again, it's Old Testament. Book of Genesis. We've talked a little bit about Abel and Cain already. You remember that Abel was killed. And when he was murdered by his brother, it tells us that God came to Cain and, and inquired of what happened. And, and God says this interesting thing. He says, the blood of your brother cries out. And so it's this imagery of then of, of the blood of Abel that when it hit the ground, if you will, it cried out. What did it cry out for? Well, it cried out for justice. It cried out for a reckoning. It cried out revealing the guilt of his brother, who then, that drove him far from God. And the writer here tells us this beautiful picture that, that the blood of Christ is greater than the blood of Abel. Because when the blood of Christ hit the ground, it didn't cry out for justice. It cried out saying justice has been served. Justice has been satisfied. It cried out grace. When the blood of Christ hit the ground, the demand of justice was satisfied. It didn't identify us as guilty. It delivered us from guilt. We've been atoned. We have been justified. The blood of Christ doesn't drive us who we were guilty, away from the Lord, the blood of Christ draws us near. Remember how the writer described this beautiful picture, this imagery, again, of the Old Testament, of how the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, we can come into the Holy of Holies. It's not that we've come to a place where God says, stand back, I'm holy, you're not. We come to faith and God says, come in. Boldly come in. Because why? Well, because of the blood of Christ, one sacrifice made on, all, on behalf of all of us. That's how it speaks of better things. Verse 25 and 26, he says, See that you don't refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? There's a contrast response of the listener, whose voice shook the earth. And now he's promising, yet once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And so here's a word of caution for us, and then i got to land this plane. We're going to run out of time. Don't refuse or reject the word of God. Very simple, he's saying. And here's the parallel. Just as it was very serious and there were very serious consequences for the group that stood there, that heard, that saw, that watched all that God was doing. And yet he's already told us they didn't mix it with faith. They're there at Mount Sinai. They heard the word of God. And yet they didn't obey. They didn't apply. There were some sad consequences for their sin, for their rebellion. And the writer says here, listen gang, we don't want to make the same mistake. We don't want to refuse or reject the word of God because we will then suffer the consequences of our own foolishness. And I liken this, if we're going to keep the, the theme of racing and finishing, almost like God's spiritual GPS or, or a navi in Japanese. Right? It begins with, you want to know who you are? You come to Christ. You want to know what your life is worth? You come to Christ. You want to know what you should be doing and where you're going? How does it all end? When we come to Christ, and, and it's the Word of God that reveals this to us. It's His Word that shows us who we are, what God has done, how He sees us, how He loves us, how He forgives us, where He's bringing, where He's taking us, and what we should do in response to that. And our journey will always be best when we allow His Spirit to lead us by His Word. 
Because there are far too many people who dismiss, who disparage, who, I need another D word, who downgrade the word of God. And sadly, even in some churches where the authority and the inspiration of Scripture has been devalued, reduced down to a, a self-help book or suggestions for life. Gang, I, I want to say this as we close. That's a very dangerous place for us to be. We, we need to, we must keep the Word of God in its rightful place, elevated as authoritative, as inspired, and to be the authority and the inspiration and the guide for our life. And I pray you would say amen to that. At Mount Sinai, when God spoke, the earth shook. And he likens this to what God is doing now. That God's still shaking things up in a very different way. The new covenant shakes things up. And God says, and yet once more, I'm going to shake not only earth, but I'm going to shake heaven. Again, God wants to shake things up in our life. We'll talk more about this next week, especially as we watch the world and see this, if you will, a shaking and a sifting and a sorting of our lives, of the church, and what we should do in response to that. At this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come and the ushers to serve you. A reminder that when we come to faith, everything changes. God brings us into a spiritual reality and reveals to us who you are. Our starting point's not the same starting point. We start with fullness of spiritual blessings. You don't have to earn them. You don't rate them. By grace, guess what? They're all yours. And then what do we do in response to that? Well, we love the Lord. And we love others, guided by His Spirit, but also by His Word that we don't refuse Him who speaks. Just keep Scripture as the authority and the guide for our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, for how Jesus gave His life for us. That His body was broken and His blood was shed. And as we are told here, how it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It doesn't cry out for justice. It doesn't cry out to reveal guilt. It doesn't cause us who are guilty to flee. But Lord, it's quite the opposite. It speaks of forgiveness and grace and restoration. It speaks of sonship and identity. And God, forgive us if perhaps we've allowed ourselves to be stressed out by what's happening in the world, to be worried, to be playing the mental chess game of being fearful of when we see the news of what's coming next. Lord, remind us of our spiritual reality and that we can be rest assured and, and, and leave those fears and worries at the foot of the cross where they belong. Lord, that we might release them to you today as we remember who we are, what you've called us to, and where we're going. And as we take time of communion, Lord, we pray you'd speak to our hearts in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.